From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hip-hop evolved from the streets of New York in the 1970s and is now the most popular genre of music. But hip-hop hasn't always been evolved in representing women and is often singled out as being harmful. In the words of filmmaker Ava DuVernay, to be a woman who loves hip-hop is at times to be in love with your abuser. Researchers at Georgia State University studied political rap songs' influence on black feminist attitudes, and the result may surprise you. Lakita Bonnett Bailey is assistant professor of political science at GSU and one of the authors of the study. Nadia Brown co-authored the study and the resulting article. She's a political science and African-American studies professor at Purdue. I spoke with them when the study had just come out and asked Lakita whether the frequent depiction of hip-hop and feminism as oppositional was part of her motivation for the study. Yes, definitely. We wanted to demonstrate and to show that you can be a feminist and still embrace and love hip-hop. And both of you have been researching and publishing work on hip-hop and women and power for quite a long time. So when looking at how rap affects perceptions of and by women, what kind of questions or hypotheses were you working with? Well, we were a lot of the research primarily deals with rap leading to misogynistic, sexist behavior and attitudes, and we wanted to demonstrate that there are different subgenres of rap, mm-hmm. and these different subgenres have different impacts. So we cannot look at all rap as negatively impacting the attitudes among women. So top line results, what did you find? Well, we found that exposure to political rap, especially when compared to mainstream rap or no music at all, increases um, support of feminist, black feminist attitudes. Mm. And, and Nadia, I'm going to ask you about black feminist attitudes, because that is a, there's a long and complicated history with black feminism and white feminism. Can you help us understand the distinction there? Sure. Well, so black feminism is a school of thought that contends that sexism, class oppression, uh, patriarchy, and gendered identity, along with racism, are linked together. They cannot be separated. Um, Patricia Hill Collins calls this the matrix of oppression. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality to talk about the ways in which black women's lives are inextricably bound to these multiple forms of oppression and privilege. So white feminism, for the most part, or white liberal feminism as we see it today, does not critically integrate the experiences of race, racism, ethnocentricity, uh, xenophobic, things that women of color distinctly experience at the same time that they are also experiencing gender oppression and patriarchy. Okay, so in your research, well, how did you research first, Lakita? Um, well, we use experimental, um, we use political psychology, and we use experiments to observe the impact of exposure to of political rap to black feminist attitudes. And so we had um, students that were exposed to um, these five conditions, one being political rap, the other is non-political rap. Um, then we had a pop group and an R&B group and then a control group where they heard no music. Um, in that, they were exposed to three songs that represented the three dominant regions at the time of hip-hop, the um, North, the Northeast, the West, and the South, and they heard three songs that represented a time period from roughly 1991 until 2006 when the research was conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they listened to various songs, and then they answered a questionnaire that had a number of questions in it, but four of those questions were used to um, identify black feminist attitudes and ideology. And how conclusive was that shift in attitudes? It was very conclusive. It was uh, statistically significant, almost um, two 
entire points difference from those that are exposed to political rap versus non-political rap. So it's demonstrating that, one, there is a difference in the type of rap music that we listen to, and there is a difference in the impact that it has on our attitudes and behavior. Um, And also, if you're not exposed to any music and just listen to political rap music, you're more likely to embrace um, black feminist attitudes. Okay. So, all right, Nadia, back to you. The report is about the influence of political and non-political rap on black feminist attitudes. So how do you define political rap? Well, that's actually a question for Lakita. <laughs> okay, uh, then I'm going to ask that to Lakita. <laughs> well, in order to provide, um, define political rap, there's a three-part criteria. One, it must include a political reference. And so this reference can be implicit or explicit reference. Um, and then it must either... Um, then it must either identify a problem or advocate some type of solution, right? So it talks about the social issues. So it doesn't always have to have all three parts, but there are songs that have all three parts. But the most important part is that it must have a political reference. And this can be um, uh, explicit reference, like the one of the songs we used was called Georgia Bush. So it was a reference to um, President Bush at the time. It was about... Um, the lack of government response after Hurricane Katrina, or it can be an implicit reference like responding, like uh, mentioning the 12, which is a code word for Mm -hmm. the police or something Mm -hmm. like that. All right, let's hear a little bit. We've got Georgia Bush by Lil Wayne. We from a town where everybody drowned in, everybody died, but baby, I'm still praying with you. Everybody cried, but ain't nobody tried. There's no doubt on my mind it was We've got a little bit of Ray Charles, George on my mind there, but also these references, very overt references to laying to waste, basically, the black, predominantly black neighborhoods in New Orleans and President Bush's administration criticized for a very slow response. All right. So you also played, as you said, a few non-political songs. Here's Walk It Out by Atlanta's DJ Junk. DJ Unk. So, Lakita, was there any difference in attitudes in male and female listeners in response to this? Um, there was some there was some difference in attitudes in males and female listeners where females were more likely again to embrace. But overall, um, both males and females were more likely to embrace feminist attitudes when they were exposed to political rap versus non-political rap. That's Lakita Bennett-Bailey. She's, uh, we're also speaking with Nadia Brown, who co-authored Studies of Hip-Hop's Influence on Black Feminist Attitudes. So was there any discussion of, I mean, of course, you're political scientists, you're not getting into the necessarily the thinking behind, but was there discussion of why attitudes or awareness shifted? You know, lyrics that stuck out, knowledge of the artist. Um, yes, yeah, so there is a lot of discussion on um, attitudes as far as, a political rap oftentimes being more progressive and talking about issues that are more relevant. And one thing that I would like to um, say is that political rap is different. We, we won't look at an artist as a political rap artist, mm-hmm. right? Um, we'll look at political rap songs individually because artists like George, um, Lil Wayne, who is not a political rap artist, would not be considered a conscious rap artist, does produce political rap songs. And there are a number of artists that produce political rap songs that talk about issues that are relevant to fem- 
to feminists and to women. So, for instance, Atlanta's own Ludacris has a song called Runaway Love, where he's talking about issues that women and young girls face. And so there are a lot of um, songs that may deal with issues that are political that may not come from our um, typical political rap Right, artists. like Common is yes. somebody we think of as a political rap artist. Yes. But how much does political rap actually penetrate the market comparatively? Well, that's actually interesting because what I show often in my research in my class is that it um, it is available, especially now when we're thinking about that more young people. And there was just a recent study that I read are actually listening to um, cloud stream applications in order to get their music hmm. and no longer relying on radio as much. And so they are exposed to songs that may not be popular on the radio. Um, even now, billboards and iTunes have charts of streaming um, streams of songs that are streamed less than songs that are appear on the radio. So uh -huh. I think they're they're more popular now. And many artists are. Um, and many young people are aware of it. Or many hip hop audience members are aware of it. And we can even look at artists like 21 Savage, who is not a typical political rap artist who's been making a lot of political rap songs that have been featured on mainstream radio. Well, we hope he will be making them yes. again. <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's ask about female MCs. Did you use female MCs in the study? Not in the study. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to eliminate kind of the gender area and where we were at at the time it wasn't a lot of female artists that were popular and we wanted to look at some more popular artists um we are doing another study where we are looking at female political rap artists versus female non-political rap artists and the messages that they're portrayed there but we do talk about the fact that they have been female artists who do um, discuss issues relevant to women like Eve's Love is Blind deals with domestic violence, Queen Latifah's UNITY deals with uh, misogyny and so there are a lot of rap songs by uh, female artists who do talk about political issues. Yeah, you're talking about two, three, four women in the past 40 years. But now, of course, we have, you know, huge artists, Lil' Kim, um, maybe in the 90s, let's say, yes. Nicki Minaj now, Cardi B, who's Bodak Yellow, yes, you know, dominated yes. the field. So does this suggest that the the fact that there are more female MCs in charge suggests there's a shift in attitude in popular rap too? Um I think rap is still hyper masculine. Um I think females are um making headway um within rap music and I think we are seeing more women um, actually become more prominent, but there are still a lot of issues within hip-hop um, dealing with misogyny and sexism um, and patriarchy that is just still rampant as it is in our society, but it's also that way in hip-hop as well. Yeah, uh, we have uh, someone on Twitter, Nathan Weaver, tweeted, Keep Your Head Up by Tupac, mm -hmm. and that was one of the songs you yes. actually used, wasn't it? Well, Nadia, I want to turn to you because you've written a lot. You've written a couple books on, on women of color in politics. So... <laughs> Is there any application here for thinking about how listeners to political rap feel about politics and maybe even applications for policymakers? Sure. So there's an entire genre of women who consider themselves hip-hop feminists and extol the virtues of trap feminism as embracing ways that women can find a voice, um, display agency, see themselves in an empowering role through um, again hip hop feminist hip hop music or or trap music, uh, brings attention those like the crunk feminist or Joan Morgan, the work of uh, Treva Lindsay or Aria Holiday, 
who um, who do this kind of work. And in other, in other pieces that I've written about, um, other research articles, I show that for young women, younger millennials, those that are currently in college, do see hip-hop music as a form of empowerment. And some of this like, coincides with um, you know, social media and black women in spaces, particularly on predominantly white college campuses, who don't see many of them in... Um, you know, positive roles are turning to listening to this music, posting on social media in ways that they can find community. And that in turn speaks to their both racialized and gendered consciousness as a black woman that often leads to political empowerment. So tweeting or talking about Black Lives Matter, but particularly say her name, Mm -hmm. or understanding how music enables women to find a sense of self-esteem to leave partners who might not be treating them the way that they wish to be treated, or to look at themselves as being beautiful even if they don't fit the conventional norms of beauty. Mm -hmm. So all of this, right, is wrapped up in a new generation of how black women are, millennial women, are seeing themselves um, through hip-hop, but are also using this as a form of empowerment. That's Lakita Bennett-Bailey and Nadia Brown, both academics and writers. They conducted studies on political hip-hop's influence on black feminist attitude. And their work is published in an article called, Do the Ladies Run This Mother? Join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. Coming up, Laurel Snyder's last novel was long listed for the National Book Award. She was also a presenter at the AJC Decatur Book Festival over the weekend. Hear her talk about her newest novel, My Jasper June, when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. A few weeks into summer, 13-year-old Leah is bored. A family tragedy the year before has her adrift from her classmates. She sees their vacation pictures on Instagram. She sleeps in, watches movies, and wanders her Ormwood Park neighborhood in the sweltering Atlanta heat. One afternoon, she cuts through a shady, overgrown lot and meets Jasper. With a halo of red hair, Jasper appears a little wild, a little mysterious, and as Leah discovers, she's homeless. Laurel Snyder is author of several picture books for kids and novels for middle-grade readers. Her newest is called My Jasper June, and it comes out this week. And it follows Jasper and Leah as they embark on a summer of urban adventures and navigate the messy path between childhood fantasy and very grown-up realities. And Laurel's joining me in the studio now. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. So the book begins in the last day of school. Leah's feeling uh, like an outsider with her friends and reveals she's tired of trying to be okay for someone else. What has shifted for her? I don't want to get into it too deeply, but the family has gone through a pretty serious tragedy. And as sometimes happens and and has sometimes happened in my own life, um, when things are hard, everybody just kind of shuts down. And so the household has just sort of shut down around her and she has 
found it really difficult to talk to people and to communicate with the world and has kind of gone into an isolation mode. And, and she's not the only one. Her parents seem to be also in this kind of bubble shut down. Yeah, she describes them as ghosts. And I think that happens, right? Like adults model for children how to handle things. And so if adults don't model communication, it's really easy for kids to stop communicating too. There's a scene, right, very early in the book when they're all having dinner together at the beginning of the summer. I'd love you to read it for us, but first, can you set up the sort of dynamic of what's going on? Sure. So they've all just sort of stopped talking to each other. Dad spends a lot of time in his phone. Mom spends a lot of time kind of fussing and worrying, but not getting very much done. And they've sat down to dinner and it's the last day of school. And the parents have suddenly realized that they didn't bother to set up anything for Leah for the summer. And so they're sort of having the conversation about what to do about that. Yes, well, said mom. In any case, it slipped my mind. I wonder what's still open. What, what kind of thing were you thinking about? I can make some calls tomorrow from work. Dad shrugged. I don't know. Don't they do something over at the zoo with animals? I see lots of kids there whenever I drive past. It looks like a summer camp sort of thing. Or maybe she could learn coding. Hmm. Now mom was chewing her thumbnail. I just sat, waiting, watching them, in silence. Sometimes parents are like wild animals. If you don't make any loud noises or sudden movements, they'll forget you're there and leave you be. I was pretty sure that dad's something at the zoo was a day camp for little kids, like a petting zoo with snack and nap time. And I did not want to spend the summer hunched over a computer learning to code lame video games with a bunch of grubby 10-year-old boys. But I also didn't think I was going to help my case any by arguing with my parents. So I kept my mouth shut. Now Mom had her phone out and was scrolling through it quickly. I wondered what exactly she'd Googled. Aimless 13-year-old activities, last-minute summer camp ideas, moms who screw up and forget about vacation. <laughs> There's a way that you get into the brain of a 13-year-old sort of rolling her eyes with her parents at dinner. How do you do that? Well, I live with a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old currently, so I am sort of deep in middle school right now at home. And it's such a funny age where one minute they're hugging you and the next minute they're slamming the door, you yeah. know. Um, I've been thinking and watching and, and trying to figure that out. But also those were really, really hard years for me as a kid. I think they, I think they are for most of us. And... You try not to revisit them most of the time, but when you're writing for this age, you you do. You spend a lot of time kind of hanging out in your old journals and listening to music that you listened to when you were a kid and, and, and really trying to kind of tap that. She is in that space. And she remembers life before her smartphone when she loved fantasy novels and right. books and, and this sense of magic. But suddenly everything gets very real. And it gets real in the form of Jasper, this this girl that she meets. A girl who has to take two buses to shop for food at the Dollar Tree, mm -hmm. um, a place that Leah had never set right. foot in, by the way, washes her clothes in the stream. She's homeless. What did, have you learned about how teenagers become homeless in, in preparing for this book? So this book came out of several experiences of my own when I was a kid. I was never, I never lived on my own in that way when I was a teenager, but I had several friends who did. Uh, when I was in high school. And I aged it down just a little bit. If I were writing a young adult novel, if I were writing for a slightly older age range, the experiences that I would have written about would have been different. But I, I had friends who were in different ways, either emancipated legally or just living on their own in sort of an informal situation. In some cases, parents had moved out and in with a new partner, sort of different things like that. And I remember being 
about 13 and kind of experiencing this for the first time, walking in the door of a house and realizing there weren't grownups living there anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a tendency to, in children's literature sometimes, to other those kinds of experiences and, and to sort of write them as stories straight trauma and to forget that the same kids that are having those experiences are also watching TV or eating a hamburger. You know, that's their life, at least for those moments when they're living that way. And and so I wanted to write something that caught both sides of that. Yeah, and she is. She's a regular kid. She wants to watch Harry Potter movies. But she's also created a little home for herself in this kind of overgrown lot we did have sensitivity readers for this book that yeah. that felt important that somebody lay eyes on this who had had this experience um, in a really true way. That but was these, interesting. These are huge issues. I mean, you've written about certainly emotional and social lives of middle grade readers um, before um, Bigger Than Bread Box about divorce, mm-hmm. for example. But but this is homelessness, addiction, uh, domestic abuse. How do you approach for young readers? You said you have sensitivity readers, so people who look it over. But how do you? I don't know, deliver that. I think that we really do kids a disservice. I'm a big believer that we need all the books. I'm a big believer that children should be able to choose the books they want to read, and they should sort of know how to choose the books they want to read so that they know when to set something aside. I think sometimes we protect them a little too much as readers, and then they don't know, they don't learn to develop that ability to censor for themselves. But I'm a big believer that kids live in the world. And I think it's a really strange thing about children's literature that, you know, so my kids live in a house that has alcohol in it, but you never see alcohol in children's books. You know, that sort of like most kids I know are growing up in a house where their parents drink beer and wine, but it's like we leave it out of the sort of landscape of their world. And I've always thought it was a little bit odd. The fact that something isn't appropriate for the child doesn't mean that they're not growing up in a world surrounded by those things, whether it's swear words or booze or smoking or, I mean, whatever those things are, older siblings that shoplift or whatever, that we create a cutoff age and we say, like, at 14, children can now be exposed to beer, when in fact, at birth, most children are exposed to beer. And I'm using that as an example because it's less fraught. But the idea that we protect children in our literature from things that we can't protect them from in real life is really strange to me. And Leah begins to see how protected her little right. world is, right? And in her little progressive neighborhood, we know it's progressive because of the yard signs. <laughs> and they, they don't call their maid a maid. Right, right. Uh, or the woman that cleans their house a maid. So she would never really get to see how protected she was if it weren't for Jasper. Well, and that's the strange thing about, in particular, neighbor, a neighborhood like Wormwood Park, which is where I live, there are people having all different kinds of experiences in terms of income levels, in terms of transportation, in terms of education, like those things are all happening side by side. And yet somehow a kid can go through their life without ever, it's like you go into this store, but not that store. Um, and and that bothers me a lot. I, I think this was sort of an opportunity to kind of bring together parts of my neighborhood and places in my neighborhood. My guest is Laurel Snyder talking about her new book, My Jasper June. She's the author of several books for kids, and her previous middle grade novel, Orphan Island, was long listed for a National Book Award. Well, they have deprivations in very different ways. You know, Leah has never had the gas cut off in her house, but Jasper knows how to take care of herself, how to stand up for herself when the bus driver won't make change, for example. How, How do you remember that time of just wanting to be grown up? I've been thinking about this so much lately. I I loved being a kid. 
And then I wanted to be an adult. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this chapter of life that was sort of upper middle school and into high school was very difficult for me. And I kind of wanted to fly past it. And so I spent a lot of time. I wanted to play house. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be a teenager in that way. And, and I, I think I spent a lot of time pretending I knew things I didn't know, watching older kids for signs of how to behave or what to say or what to order in a restaurant or how to wear my clothes that I, I just wanted to jump ahead. I, I didn't enjoy not knowing things. Hmm. And I, th- I think a really important thing about this book for me was that this isn't a book where one person saves somebody else. This is a book where two people discover that Real relationships and real communication and real sharing and openness and vulnerability, the relationship that you create with somebody when you do those things has the power to save both people. It's not somebody scooping someone else up. It's two people sort of holding hands. Yeah, Jasper doesn't want – she doesn't want to be a charity case. No, neither, and I think neither one of them wants to be saved, but they both need something. I'm not sure either person has the tools to save the other one. But that together they are able to do things they could not do alone. They come to truly know each other. Yeah. You know, they fight and that's okay. But nobody wants to appear to be needy. Which So what comes with truly knowing for these two girls? This book, in many ways, is a tribute to my best friend. I have one best friend that I have had since I was – I also have family members who I love dearly. But I have one best friend that I have had since I was a very young girl um, who continues to be my best friend. And – has always been that person for me. And I think I was a very, I think I was an adult before I realized that not everybody found that person when they were a kid. And that what it means when you're a social pariah or your parents are splitting up or things are financially difficult at home or you move, I mean, any of the hard things you go through in life, what it means to go through them if you don't have that person that you know you can say anything to and that you can fight with and that you can lose your temper with um, and that you can be weak or frail with or admit mistakes. It's just a very different experience of life. And I write about magic a lot. And another interviewer asked me, like, if I could wish for anything, what would I wish for when I was a kid? And I said, you know, it's funny thinking about it in terms of this book. I think if I could have had anything, I would have had a friend (laughs) that I think most kids at 13, if they could choose to have a really true friend, if, if they're that kid who doesn't have that and they're like watching the other kids and trying to figure out how they do it. How do some people just know how to trust other people? How do some people just know how to be themselves with somebody else? That's a really hard thing to figure out how to do if if it didn't come naturally and if you didn't find that right person really young. And so I think that that was part of this book, too, was just sort of as I was engaging with ideas of magic or not magic, it is like maybe the, the biggest magic I know is like what it means to find the one person who gets you and who will be there for you 100%. I think it's also a book about parenting. Is totally, absolutely. <laughs> true? I mean, they're trying to make up for their deficiencies, real or imagined. Yeah. And there's a way that when you were talking about that true friendship, you know, ones that go it through thick and thin with you and ups and downs, it's modeling what you are as an adult and probably in some ways it's creating a foundation for you, who you are as a couple. Absolutely. And I and I think that I think that a lot of kids do that. I mean, I think a lot of kids look at what they didn't have from their parents, or what they didn't have from their family, and they try to build that in their chosen family as they as they become adults, which these kids are trying to figure out how to do. It's also a book about changing Atlanta in many ways, yeah. right? You know, the mansions are taking over her neighborhood, the apartment buildings are going up everywhere. And this place, Red's Farm, it has wildness. It's teeming with kudzu. It's it's the kind of place I would have played as mm-hmm. a kid. So you're raising two kids in 
Urban Atlanta. Yep. How did they have that fantasy space, that play space? Did they, they have def- to? They definitely did as as kids. I mean, we moved into Ormwood Park at sort of just the perfect age for them to explore and catch snakes and, you know, salamanders and, and hop around on rocks and things like that. And we really, really loved and felt like Red's Farm was a magical space for us. Um, it's a complicated city. It's a complicated time. I mean, maybe it always is. Uh, I definitely feel like my children are very aware of changes in the neighborhood and their part in that. You know, we talk about that at home that <laughs> now that they're in middle school, like they, they throw the word gentrification around and and we have to sort of stop and say we're part of that too. It would be incredibly dishonest not to own our space and all of that, that, you know, we moved to the city 15 years ago and, and were able to buy affordable houses and those houses aren't affordable anymore. And, and the, my kids need to understand that too. Um, but that's that's hard stuff. Yeah, that's how do they really take that tri- in? I don't know. They can talk to their therapists about it later. <laughs> I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't know. And that this is a, what you've a lot of books. Eighteen, twenty books. Have I got this that is, right? I, I, I lose track. I well, lose track. Many picture books, yes. middle grade novels. Somewhere around 20 books. Well, early in your career, you were publishing poetry. And mm-hmm. you still write poetry, as mm-hmm. far as I know. But there was this Half-Life, a book about mm-hmm. interfaith homes that you edited, Daphne and Jim, a mm-hmm. biography. So what is it about writing for kids that stuck for you? I think I was always writing for kids. Not always everything. I, I do book reviews for the New York Times. Those are not for children to read. But... I began writing poetry when I was eight years old. And when when I was eight and I was writing poetry about fairies, um, I was writing poetry because I think it was briefer. And, you know, you're still learning to write. Um, And I loved poetry. I mean, I've always loved poetry. But I was writing poetry for children. And in my head, that's what I was doing. And then as I got older, I grew into writing adult poetry. And that was a fit in a lot of ways. But when I look back at the poems that I was making in graduate school or in the years just after graduate school, they all, I mean, my the, my master's thesis was called The Story of the Girl in the Flattened World. And it was about a girl and a bird and these like simple machines and gravity. Like it was very mythic. It was very fabulistic. I think I was sort of encoding what I really wanted to do, which was to write fables, which was to write stories. Um, and it just, it took a certain amount of comfort and frustration with the publishing world and things like that to kind of find my way to children's writing for real. It, there was something magical to me about childhood and fairy tale and myth, and there was always something magic to me about art and text together. Um, so I don't know. Maurice Sendak said that he didn't write for children. He wrote, and, and that was who read it. I don't, I don't know if I believe that that's true for me. I, I do feel like I'm writing for children. I spend a lot of time thinking about what it is to be a child. Well, thank you for sharing this book with us. Thank you so much for having me. Laurel Snyder, she is author of My Jasper June and many other books, but this one is out this week. We're going to leave you with Leonard Cohen's anthem, which plays a big role in the book. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 
Almost 200,000 children in Georgia and more than 2.7 million in the United States have an incarcerated parent. That's according to the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated. In Atlanta, the organization Forever Family helps strengthen the bonds between incarcerated parents and their children through programming and visitation. Sandra Barnhill is founder and national president of that organization. When we spoke earlier, I asked her about Georgia's high rates of imprisonment and probation and how many families they affect. Millions of families. Really, when you look at the statistics, the Georgia Department of Corrections says that there are about 200 children who have a mom and or a dad in prison. So that doesn't include the number of parents who are out there on probation. And that's why I think the number is even higher. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the things that we've got to do here in our state is to begin to get a firm grasp on how many young people, how many children are being adversely affected. Yeah. And the families, I guess, replicating, you know, parents, sisters, brothers, all of those affected as well. But many of the debates that we have about incarceration, they're about unequal sentencing or, you know, tough on crime versus cost of incarceration and the personal cost to inmates. Children don't seem to come up much. Why do you think that is? Because they're considered collateral damage. We don't think about it. In many ways, these children are invisible. Nobody walks around at school and says, hey, my mommy, my daddy's in prison. Nobody at church says, hey, my parent is locked up. Nobody at the grocery store does that either. So it's almost, Virginia, like out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Do you think that those children, those families often even go to great lengths to conceal that their parents are incarcerated? Yes, because there is a stigma associated with having a parent in prison, particularly a mom. We often say, okay, the parent is um, a criminal. They've been convicted of a crime. But we also then say that not only are they criminal, but they're probably not very good parents. And I find that statement not to be true. These parents love their children and their children fiercely love them. Well, we find that data-wise, since 1980, the number of women incarcerated has multiplied sevenfold. So that's staggering. Your organization began with a focus on women and mothers in prison. What kind of resources were you not seeing for this group of people? Well, the first thing that we saw was the disconnection from their children. And our mission is to strengthen that bond. When a man goes to prison... He often has a real strong support network around him, a mom, a wife, a girlfriend, a cousin, generally females who will ensure that his kids are taken care of. But when a woman, a woman goes to prison, often it is only her mom, her sister, her cousin who will get involved. And so we find that overall... Fathers in prison, men in prison get many more visits than women in prison. And so part of what we've got to do is to change that, which is really why our organization was created. So a large part of why was the organization created? What, what drew you to this? Two things, really. One, I was a practicing attorney and I worked with a lot of uh, women in prison on prison condition cases. And no matter what we talked about or no matter what we put in motions, the underlying question from those women was, what about my kids? What about my kids? And so I really realized that the law was not the answer. 
part of the answer. But you and I and the rest of the citizens in this state and this country, we are the answer to this problem. We must get active. Yes, we must have laws, but we must see these children for who they are. Beautiful, precious gifts that have every right to grow up to help lead this country. And we've got to make sure that happens. A large part of the work that you do is organizing and facilitating visitation between kids and parents. Why is this such a big part of your focus? Because kids often think these types of thoughts. Well, my mommy must not love me. My daddy must not love me or they would not go to prison. Or, oh my God, my mom, my dad's in prison. I'm going to end up there too. We work very hard to dispel both of those statements. These children have a bright future. And again, somebody must invest in them. I was fortunate to grow up in a home with my mom and dad and um, just had a pretty regular, normal kind of life. Every child deserves that life. Now, whether they're um, in a two-parent home, that's not the issue. The issue to me is that every child needs to be loved needs to be encouraged, and needs to know their worth. The caregivers of these children do a good job, but many of them are older grandparents, and they need our community to come alongside them, not to take over, but to support them as they play their important role. I want to uh, dig into one of the things you said, that children, the, the belief that children who have incarcerated parents are much more likely to be incarcerated themselves. This is a persistent idea, but the Annie E. Casey Foundation found no solid evidence that that's true, that children with incarcerated parents have an increased risk of being involved with the justice system. Why do you think this idea does stick around? Because I think that we demonize people who have been incarcerated and by extension demonize their children and their families. I'm happy to say I was a 1993 Annie E. Casey fellow and actually brought that work to them as one, and was one of the thought leaders as they begin to move into this arena and look at children that have been affected by parental incarceration. And so I'm so glad for the research that they did, because hopefully it will stop some of the stigma. Sandra Barnhill is with us. She is the president and founder of Forever Family, helping parents with incarcerated children and those children, especially as their parents are going through the justice system. So, Sandra, what are some outcomes for students when a parent is incarcerated? Well, there are two sides to that, Cohen. The outcome when they're with us, Virginia, is that they do well in school. They're actively involved in extracurricular activities, and they fully engage and take up their leadership, and they develop a stronger and more um, connected relationship with their parent through visitation. Research, um, the jury is kind of out in terms of what happens if children don't have visitation. But what I can say from my uh, 32 years on the ground working with over 35,000 young people, they do better when they are connected with their parent. And part of what we do is to ensure that. And when I say they do better, they generally seem much more grounded. Their bonding with school, with family is stronger. Their self-esteem is higher. Those are all of the ingredients that young people need to do well. Well, so having parents in jail doesn't mean a child is going to someday end up in jail. But people do talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, especially for children of color. First, can you explain what that is? 
Sure. Well, unfortunately, in our society, we determine how many prisons we're going to build by looking back at um, our educational system and saying, okay, by third grade, if this child can't read, that probably is going to be a statistic. That's one side of it. Then the other side, Virginia, is that in our society now, we criminalize behavior that when I was a child just got dealt with. In other words, if you misbehaved in school, you might get sent to the principal's office. Your parents would be called. You would get detention. Now, when you misbehave in school, oftentimes the um, officers that patrol to protect the school then take you into custody and you turn around and your child is in the juvenile system. And so um, safety is important, no doubt. But we are swinging the pendulum too far in the wrong direction. We shouldn't fear our children. We should love them and figure out how to support them, even when their behavior is not the best. So you talked earlier about, you know, a parent who's incarcerated is not a bad parent. But how can you be a good parent when you're incarcerated? Well, the first level is to have a commitment to parent your child, even under these circumstances. Our agency has a manual called Parenting from Prison that talks about that. And we say from the moment you walk inside the door, your reunification with your children needs to begin. The first thing that you can do is take every program you can inside the institution to better yourself. The second thing that you can do is make sure you don't get any disciplinaries so that you can continually visit your child. So I think that the way parents can take up their parenting role um, inside or behind the walls is to make up their mind that they are going to do the time and the time is not going to do them. They are going to come out of this situation stronger, better, more connected to their child and more clear that they will not engage in any illegal activity that could separate them from their family. So uh, I, I was looking at the Marshall Project has done a lot of work on this and some investigated work on parent-child separation. You know, one of their advocates called it the separation crisis that nobody is talking about. But part of it was that how it felt to the parent, the, the guilt, the shame, uh, how would they face their children and know that, you know, this, this is a kind of effect that could last for a lifetime. So how do you help them get beyond you know, that? That is a crippling kind of belief system. The worse they feel about it, the more likely they may not be to see their children. Is that true? That is true. So we have a therapist a licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Janie Francis Asante, who's worked with us for over 20 years. And I support her and agree with the position she has taken. You must tell the truth. We cannot begin to change things in our lives until we face them. And so what we encourage parents to do is to be honest with their child and say, mommy, daddy made a mistake because I can be a good person and make a mistake. So I made a mistake. I'm being held accountable for my mistake. I've learned from my mistake and this is how I'm moving forward. And so to be in our program, you cannot tell your child that you are on a mission for the government. Hmm. You cannot tell your child that you're overseas. You cannot tell your college that your child that you're away at college. You must tell them where you are. Obviously, the way you share that is based on the developmental level of the child. What you would tell a five-year-old is not what you would tell a 15-year-old. But we require that because the only way we can move forward 
is with that level of transparency and honesty. And how, what, what age is appropriate for a child to visit a parent in prison? Well, we take newborns and people might say newborns. Well, yes, that's very important because once, um, parents separates, particularly a mother from their child right after having them, um, the need to be close and have those bonds really affects the child. So as soon as the child is cleared by their physician or medical provider to be able to go out in public, we will take them for visitation. We help pioneer here in Georgia the concept of children's centers, which is a special room inside the prison where the moms um, get to hold, change diapers, cuddle, play with their children. And it looks like a daycare. And we're so happy to have helped to develop that and think it is so important that in every one of the women's prisons, and there are four in Georgia, there is that center, that children's center. Is there any evidence supporting reduced recidivism for incarcerated parents who remain connected to their children? Yes, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which you mentioned earlier, has really um, put a lot of money towards that question and and trying to figure that out. And so here's what the research is saying now. Um, they say a couple of things. One, if a parent has maintained a bond with the child while they were incarcerated, when they come out, they're less likely to recidivate. They're more likely to get a job and to keep it. And so that's an important piece for us. What we are beginning to see through the research is that that connection really does help the person. One of the issues, um, Virginia, that we have is not a lot of funding has been put toward researching this area. And so I'm hoping that more foundations and research organizations will follow Casey's suit. Well, in one in eight cases, of parents lose parental rights when they are incarcerated. And for women, it's more than five times more likely to have a child folded into the foster care system. So how does Forever Families help unite parents after that, after they're out of prison? Well, generally, it starts for us once the parent is incarcerated. We are recognized by the Department of Corrections in the first 30 days a prisoner is a diagnostic, and they hear about the programs, and so we're one of them. And then they connect with us, and we begin bringing their children. And so most women are in prison um, six years and eight months. Men, five years and three months. And so during that time, we are helping them to keep the bonds um, strong. And so once they get out, that doesn't stop. We continue to stand alongside them. We're not taking them, transporting them to visit anymore, but we are supporting them. So you're talking about what is happening more and more in social services, kind of wraparound services, yes. not addressing just one need, but many others. Uh, you mentioned women in prison. There was a study published just last week in the Journal of American Health found a growing number of live births among women in prison. No hard data on some reports of giving birth in cells or while in shackles, but still the question of how does Forever Families work with children who are actually born in prison? Well, we actually partner with a sister organization, um, Mothering Behind Bars. I recently went to every month they have a baby shower for women who are pregnant. And what happens here in Georgia is when you are pregnant, you are transferred from your facility to Helms, which is a facility where pregnant mothers are. You get medical care there. 
You go to what we call the free rural hospital, have your baby, and then it's turned over. You have, I think it's uh, 36 hours with your child, and then your family or the state takes it. We get involved through that partnership by connecting immediately with that family to say, hey, we will, once the baby is cleared, bring you guys for visitation. And so some of what happens in this work is that there are different organizations doing pieces of the work, and we support one another so that there's a continuum of services and care for these families. Well, Sandra, uh, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, just 30 seconds here. What, is it, what, what keeps you coming back? Oh, the love. I'm going to tell you, I have grown tremendously um, through being involved with these children and their families. I, um, My life is so blessed and graced to be able to share um, time with them, to learn from them, to be a part of their family. And that's why I love our name, Forever Family, because we are forever family now. That's Sandra Barnhill, founder and national president of Forever Family in Atlanta. We were talking about how Georgia families cope with the state's comparatively high rate of imprisonment and probation. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs> 